to the 2018 6th Annual Kessler Neurotrauma Conference, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. This conference presents an in-depth look at the art of delivering individualized rehabilitation services to this diverse patient population. Physicians, clinicians, and research scientists will provide insight into a range of topics, from mobility and fatigue to intimacy and sexuality to employment and empowerment, and will offer innovative evidence-based strategies to effectively support both the patient and the caregiver. This podcast was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, December 7, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. In this lecture podcast, Dr. Steve Kirschbloom presents, Who Will Walk After SCI? Dr. Kirschbloom is a senior medical officer for Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, West Orange, New Jersey campus, and Kessler Foundation. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Let's listen in. Our first speaker is Dr. Kirschblum. Um, Dr. Kirschblum is our senior medical officer here at Kessler. He's also the director of our spinal cord injury program. He's also the chair of the PM&R department at Rutgers and the chief medical officer at the foundation. His topic is walking after SCI. So good morning to everybody. Walking after spinal cord injury. People really want to know. So I was going to start off by showing you a video. Um, but we can't get the sound to work, but at least we'll, we'll show you basically what he's saying here. This is a physician discussing with a group. And what he's saying is, is that the word walking must be forgotten. That people must be content with life in a wheelchair. And that they must accept that. So this is another video that hopefully the sound will work for. We want to make one thing very clear to you, Ron. The possibility of your ever walking again is minimal. Almost impossible. Your T6, paralyzed from the mid-chest down. Probably you'll be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. So those were the prognoses that were given. In 1995, the actor Christopher Reeve, most notably known for his role as Superman, sustained a severe spinal cord injury. He had a very high-level injury and was ventilator-dependent. He would often, though, go on talk show hosts, talk shows at the night and during the day, and would describe that he believed that he would walk again in the very near future. And he would do this on a very consistent basis. These bold predictions caused quite a stir, I have to tell you. Many people were very upset with him and criticized him. And he wasn't alone in the criticism. A lot of people criticized me as well for thinking that I enabled him to be able to give these bold predictions about what would occur in the very near future regarding walking. 
This was a Super Bowl commercial in 2000 that created a significant backlash. And tonight, tonight we celebrate a remarkable breakthrough in spinal cord injuries. Made possible by countless researchers and contributors. And to present this award, we have some very special guests. after this Super Bowl commercial was unbelievable. People for years did not remember the score of the game, but remembered this commercial. And it struck a nerve in many people. This was an article that was written in Time Magazine. I don't know if people know that uh, Charles Krauthammer, who was a famous uh, commentator and writer, interesting history, but he himself was a C5 level spinal cord injury if not higher level. Uh, most times people did not know that he was in a wheelchair when he appeared on news and that was, that was done for a purpose. He wrote the following, I've long been reluctant to criticize Christopher Reeve and in talking with uh, Mr. Krautheimer, he told me that he really wanted to stay away from talking about spinal cord injury or writing about it and only did so very few times in his, throughout his career. But he wrote his Super Bowl ad was just too much. Why did he do it? And then he went on to criticize some of the reasons why he believed that Christopher Reeve was involved in this whole idea of walking after spinal cord injury. And he basically said that after decades of work, this is truly just a fantasy in his mind. The interest in walking is not limited to one individual. If we take a look at the literature, people after a spinal cord injury and their families want to know what the prognosis is for walking. And it doesn't matter what age the person is, it doesn't matter what level of injury it is, this is the question that comes up. And I think that it's important for clinicians who take care of people with spinal cord injury or who are involved in the field of rehabilitation and may encounter some of these patients to have an understanding about what is the 2000 and almost 19 prediction regarding walking for people with spinal cord injury. So let's, what are the goals of this talk? I now realize that I have uh, about hmm, 35 minutes. So what is walking and spinal cord injury? What are some prediction models? Can you sort of put data into an app and come up with a prediction model? What are the pros and cons of walking? What are the training methods that people have to be able to walk with patients? What about the role of exoskeletons and some brand new research that's taking place to enable people to walk after spinal cord injury? How many people in the audience take care or, or have some involvement with people with spinal cord injury? All right, so a fair amount. Okay, so this is a, a number of exciting things that are happening, so let's go through it. So first, the definition of ambulation. So there are really four definitions for walking. Uh, Probably community ambulation is what most people would consider really walking. It's the ability to walk 150 feet, be able to get up and down or transfer on them, their own. The walking can be with or without assistive devices. So you can use braces, you can use a walker, you can use crutches, and that all would be considered part of walking. 
Household walking is walking very slowly or very short distances, which is uh, very important. Uh, walking for exercise, and then also being non-ambulatory, I guess, is a type of ambulation. So who walks? So this has really been the age-old question. And a number of years ago, starting back in the 1970s, people tried to come up with how can we determine which patient will be able to walk? Because even back in the 70s, when you had six months a year in rehab, inpatient rehab, yes, for some of you, you may find that hard to believe, they were allowed to stay in rehab for six months to a year. Um, so they came up with these rules about, okay, if a person has this amount of strength, they'll probably be able to walk. But these technically aren't prediction rules. They're just basically telling you where you are at that time, whether you should be able to walk or not. Prediction rules are really, can I tell early on what a person will be able to do in the future? So that as time went on, a number of other studies came out. Uh, this was a paper in 2010 that looked at if you had a lower extremity motor score, the level of injury, severity of injury, that if you have a long, complicated type of algorithm, that you can try to figure out whether a person will be able to walk or not. But many people didn't use that. But more recently, a couple of new algorithms have come out to really be able to predict walking. So let me describe to you the two most commonly uh, utilized ones. The first one is was described uh, by author Van Mitterdorp, and he looked at if you take your activity at two weeks post-injury, two weeks, what would be the prognosis of walking at one year? And they looked at the European Model Systems Database. Make a long story short, they found that if you have five key things, the person's age, their motor strength of two different muscles and lower extremities on each side of the body, and their sensory score at just two dermatomes, you can calculate what the prediction of a person walking at one year would be. Now, a more concise clinical prediction one uh, was written just a couple of years ago, and this was by Hicks. They used data from the Canadian database, and they said, again, you take data within 15 days, and instead of five pieces of information, you only need three. It's the person's age, their one motor strength, which is their knee extensors, and one sensory point, which is the S1, and you can predict exactly where the person will be able to walk. So there's some people, and we here have, have also, we have an app that we use, uh, which can basically make the formula very easy. And here's what you do. You can just take the person's age, you plug it in, the L3 motor score, S1 motor score, your sensory scores. You come up with a score, or you can use the Hicks one, where you have three. You come up with a score, and that will give you a prediction of whether a person will be able to walk. And here, this is exactly what happens, that so you can come up with a walking probability based upon these algorithms. This seems really good, except for one problem that has been identified, and now more than one. These are not anywhere near perfect. Here's an example of why it's not perfect. Let's take a person who's age 64, and this is your probability of walking, 91% chance of walking if you have these criteria. What happens if the person is just, instead of being a 64-year-old, is a 66-year-old? That's not a very big difference in age. But look what happens to the probability based upon the algorithm. Chances go from a 91% chance of walking to a 41%. Or on the Hicks probability algorithm, it goes from a 66%, which is still a pretty good chance of walking, 
down to 19%, which is a really poor predictor of walking, all because of one-year or two-year age difference. And two years shouldn't make the big difference. An article was just published a couple of months ago which also showed what the problems with these probability rules are. What they said is, is that these probability rules work really well if you are severely injured, or an age impairment scale A, or you're hardly injured, you're an age impairment scale D. But the truth is, is that those are the people that we already know whether they're going to walk or not. Right? If you're a severe injury, you're a cervical age impairment scale A, we know the chance of walking are very small. And if you're an age impairment scale D, we already know that the chance of walking is very high. It's the people in the middle that are most important. And what these algorithms show is, is that they're really not very sensitive for those middle of the roads. So I think we have to recognize that while there are algorithms, if you're case managers, if you're therapists, if you're physicians, do not use the algorithm and decide, well, the chances are not very high this person will walk, and say, oh, we're not going to walk with them. That's not the way that these prediction rules should be used. Now, there are a number of pros and cons about walking. There are, certainly, we know that walking is very helpful for mobility. It helps you get from one place to the other. There are physiologic benefits, especially in spinal cord injury. The benefits of muscle, bone, heart, respiratory. There are so many positive things about walking from a physiologic standpoint, let alone from the psychological standpoint. People want to be at eye level. People want to be able to get from one place to the other like they see everyone else in the mall or in the community doing. But it comes at some costs. So the first thing we have to think about is, what is the energy cost of walking? And how fast can you go? Uh, there's a lot of information I could give you on this, but uh, suffice to say that for people that are at the borderline of being able to walk, not only are there energy costs, but there are also costs to the muscles and the bones. What happens when you have pathologic low extremity movements for so long? What impact will it have on the knees, the hips, the shoulders? If you're using the walker or the crutches to hold yourself up and walking, what is the long-term wear and tear of these things? And this is all we should keep in mind. When it comes to speed, I think there are things that we need to keep in mind that there's a a pace at which you're too slow. The numbers that are used, and most numbers are used in meters per second, uh, because a lot of studies are done uh, in Europe, uh, and even American studies are done with meters per second. But I tried to give you the way the meters per second equals miles per hour. You need to be able to walk about 0.44 meters per second or one mile per hour in order for it to be considered a pace that will be safe. Uh, and the way that they do this is, is that in a normal street, not ones necessarily here in West Orange, or especially not the one down at the Kessler Hill, which lasts for only about 12 seconds, I think, uh, it's to be able to get from one side of a street to the other uh, with the light not turning green on going the other way. So one mile per hour, or 0.44 meters per second, is considered the <laughs> slowest pace at which you should be able to go. And what happens is that sometimes people walk so slow with some of their adaptive equipment, that they say, oh my gosh, this is just way too slow. Let me use the wheelchair. 
So this is an important slide, and this may give information that, that may be helpful for you, especially if you're, if you're therapists or physicians trying to understand what is the cost of walking when it comes to energy. So a MET is basically the amount of metabolic energy expenditure that you have at just sitting and resting very quietly. So walking, we normally walk at about 2.5 meter, uh, miles per hour or 1.1 meters per second. That's a normal pace. If you're a New Yorker, you walk a lot faster. If you're, I don't want to make fun of any place, but some places walk a little slower. And the average energy cost of walking is about two to two and a half METs. So that's the energy expenditure. So if we use that as the basic guideline, let's take a look at some other methods of walking that you may, have be, do may be doing with your patients. If you use CAFOs, which is knee ankle photothoses, a person has bilateral knee ankle photothoses, the walking speed is 0.6 miles per hour. That's pretty slow. Now, someone could really motor it for the first 10 feet, but then they go pretty slow. And the energy cost is double what normal walking is. Walking slow, double the energy cost. It doesn't mean you shouldn't, the person shouldn't walk. It just means that you need to keep that in mind in terms of understanding, well, how far can the person really go on, these, on this device? Well, what about RGOs? So you see that they walk even slower uh, with reciprocating gaitorthoses. Uh, FES walking, or the use of parastep, and I'll describe this in a minute. You walk even slower, and the energy cost is significant. Right, 6.5, that's high that's a very high activity level, three times that of normal walking. What about the wheelchair? So a person in a manual wheelchair can go about three and a half miles an hour, which is faster than normal walking, uh, and the METS is about what it is for walking, if not a little less. Robotic exoskeletons, we'll talk about those in a few minutes, and I'll keep an eye on time. And they walk about, they can go, depending upon which type of device you're using, and the level of injury that the person is can go anywhere from uh, half a mile an hour to 1.1 miles an hour. And the energy cost is a little bit higher than normal walking, again, depending upon the level of injury uh, that the person is. Walking training. So there are two types of walking training, and I want to describe it very quickly. The first is called locomotor training, and the second is gait training. Locomotor training is based upon a theory of where you have to do repetitive motion uh, to be able to relearn for the spinal cord, for the central nervous system to relearn how to walk. So it promotes adaptive and use-dependent plasticity in the neurological system. Gait training is the old type, and that the old doesn't mean bad, just means the bread and butter of having the therapist work with the patient with assisted devices, whether it be the typical braces or even using exoskeletons, to relearn and compensate for what their deficits are to walk. Locomotor training, and we've discussed this before in, in, in some of these uh, conferences in the past, uh, locomotor training is basically this idea that if you want the spinal cord to learn to walk, walk. That's what you need to do. You, learn to, you need to relearn to walk, not with braces, but relearn how to walk the, the way that just even kids learn to walk. The kids don't learn to walk with braces. Sometimes you have to fall, and I realize that that creates problems in, in the rehab environment. But it's because we believe that there's something inherent in the spinal cord. There's a locomotor center in the spinal cord that can relearn how to walk. But the only way to do that is you need to walk with the person for them to regain that ability. And there's evidence in primates, certainly in cats and rats, 
and primates, including humans. So this is great. The principles of locomotor walking, uh, locomotor training, and we have a number of therapists that, that are really great with this, uh, are listed here. Uh, and oftentimes we use body weight support training in order to incorporate this initial locomotor pattern. Uh, these are some of the different devices that are available uh, out there, and I, I'm happy to, if, if there's a uh, place to put the slides, I'll, I'll send them in so that you can download them for what some of the different types of devices are, that they're both mobile or ceiling-mounted um, ceiling devices. The advantages of this is certainly you can compensate for limb weakness. You can teach the patient how to walk. It's safer for the patient. It's safer for the therapist because you have something to hold them up. They won't fall. But a disadvantage may be that they won't develop some of the postural control mechanisms that we normally learn when walking. Uh, so some people feel, feel that it's appropriate uh, early on in the training program. Uh, many studies have shown that the use of body weight support treadmill training improves patients with spinal cord injury from the chronic standpoint in terms of walking over ground, walking faster, head and trunk control, the coordination, positive carryover, and one study last year even showed that walking, these walking training programs, especially locomotive training programs, may reduce rehospitalization. We're going to come back to this in a minute. Gait training is using of orthoses, which is the way we talked about the bread and butter of what therapists will do. That helps compensate and provide support. We can use all different types of braces. The acronyms, the HKFO is the hip, knee, ankle, foot orthoses. The KAFO is the knee, ankle, foot orthoses. And the AFO is the ankle, foot orthoses. And there are many different types of devices. The question is, which technique is better? Uh, and uh, Dr. Ward, Irene Ward, who, who, gave, who was moderating here, this is certainly uh, involved in a uh, clinical practice guideline that's reviewing this whole idea of locomotor training. Is locomotor training better than overground, other than, than therapy-driven training, or is one type better than the other? And the answer is, at least my answer is, uh, we don't know. We can find articles that show that one system is better than the other. We can show another article, a series of articles that one is better than the other. At this point, though, I don't know if there's really evidence to show whether overground is better than treadmill, the speed at which you train, whether that makes a difference, whether there's a difference between locomotor training or conventional physical therapy. We can certainly find articles that will support whatever belief that we have, uh, which is good. But I, I don't know if there's an absolute answer. But I also believe that part of the reason why we don't have an answer is that there are a tremendous amount of differences in the methodology of the, a lot of these papers, the stepping protocols, the experience of the people that are involved in these studies, the length of interventions, the sessions. I think the data, there's a lot of data. But the truth is, is that a lot of bad data doesn't add up to good data. Right? A lot of junk just means a lot of junk. Now, I'm not saying that people that did these articles are junk. I'm just saying that I don't think we have enough information to say. Um, but, but hopefully, as time goes on, we'll continue to have better studies. Now, th there's a whole question out there about aggressive walking programs. Uh, this is a, a, a slide I show from an article in the Chinese Medical Journal. Uh, there was a description of a walking program called the 666. 
six hours a day, six days a week for six months, where the person just gets up, gets up and walk. Whether this is better or not, um, I, I had the chance to go out to Kunming in China and see whether the training program, it's really quite amazing, uh, unbelievable. They have in, in that center 100 patients. The family or the high, or higher aides do the walking, not the therapists. By the way, there's only three therapists for the 100 patients. Yes, staffing there. If, you, if you're at a place that has staffing ratios different, then don't use that as your uh, reference. Uh, I, at this point, I, I will tell you that it's really unclear. I do have my personal belief that the more walking a person does, the better. But that also doesn't mean six hours a day is the right amount of walking. Uh, I think that that may be too much. Uh, but I think uh, we don't have the answer to it. There are different mechanisms that we also have if we're using bracing to allow people to walk. We have uh, the, the braces that we use on the ankles. We also have some electrical stimulation devices that are helpful. This is uh, a walk aid or a bioness. Uh, so there are a number of different systems that one can use to enhance the walking uh, for patients. We also have the uh, robotic exoskeleton, which is uh, the local mat, is the m most common one that's used around the world. And this is basically a, ro a robot that does the walking with the patient. You can see on the right, uh, the patient is in the robot. Uh, and then you can see it's moving. Uh, all the parameters are placed into the computer so that it's really the robot that's walking. Now, there are potential advantages of this as well. Um, but at this point, we really don't have evidence to show that there's great carryover to being able to walk over ground. That doesn't mean that there isn't a place for local men. Certainly, we can tackle that during the questions, uh, if there's time. Uh, there may be a place for all the different types of locomotor training that we have. The issue of exoskeletons has become really quite popular. So these are the four most common exoskeletons that are available in the United States uh, for clinical use. Um, they're called, this is the XOGT, uh, the first one. The second is the Indigo. XOGT is a company out in uh, California called XO. Um, the Indigo is uh, from Parker uh, in Cleveland. The Rewalk is from Israel. And the Rex is from New Zealand. So these are the four most common ones. There's a lot of differences. We don't have the time to really go through all the differences of all these exoskeletons. There are many commonalities between them, uh, but also differences. Just if you take a look at this, the weight differences, uh, there's a significant difference between some of them. Uh, the Rex, which is all the way on the right, it moves extremely slowly, uh, very, very slow. It's joystick controlled, may also be brain computer controlled in the future for very, very, very high-level patients. So that's mostly for C, uh, C4, C5 uh, level patients. The others are for lower type patients. There's indications for each of them. Uh, here, we happen to be using uh, most of the different exoskeleton devices, both in research and also on the clinical realm. Uh, some, uh, I have another slide on it. This is a, a, a uh, movie of some of the patients with some of the exoskeletons. Uh, you can see this a person walking in our um, research gym here with uh, the, uh, one of the exoskeletons being able to get up and again walking. 
In the United States, none of these devices are approved for use on steps. Uh, this, uh, by the way, you, you now see the video of the person walking outside, and that's with uh, Buffy, one of our uh, therapists, uh, senior therapists, and uh, Gail Forrest. This is the uh, use of the rewalk on steps in Europe. In Europe, it is approved for a stair negotiation. Every little while, the software for each of these are being updated. Uh, and it really is exciting with what's happening uh, with these. Some of the benefits of these overground exoskeletons is that they improve mobility. They, and perhaps a cardiovascular performance, uh, leg muscle mass, decreased fast mass, um, bowel movement regularity because the person is more upright and moving, so that improves bowel movements. It decreases pain, decreases spasticity, can improve sleep, psychological well-being. There's other studies that show some other physiologic benefits. However, and I love exoskeletons. Uh, I love the theory of exoskeletons. We're doing a lot of work on exoskeletons. But in truth, at this point yet, uh, we don't know if exoskeletons are better than conventional therapy in improving walking. Yes, there are some studies that show that they do. There are some studies wow. that show that they do not. So people are still looking to see whether it enhances neurologic recovery as well as just being a performance uh, benefit as well. And it doesn't seem to be yet the difference in the velocity that people can walk, whether if they train within the exoskeleton and then come out of it. More studies are absolutely needed, and that's why a number of centers are, are performing them. Uh, two are available for personal use, so that we have a clinical program on for patients that would like to purchase it on their own, the Indigo and the Rewalk. Um, they're each, uh, we're not, we don't have time to go into details, but the level of injury, certainly you can contact us, the level of injury that the person needs to be in order to be eligible for these. Uh, they're not very well, uh, can't say that they really infiltrated the market to a great deal. The VA does uh, offer exoskeletons to rewalk to some of their patients uh, who, and veterans who uh, would benefit from it. Uh, others are available for uh, personal purchase. Sometimes workers' comp will pay for it. Uh, the walking speed needs to improve a little bit, I believe, and some, but they, some patients can walk pretty fast, right? 1.34 miles per hour really is, goes above that threshold of where we say that the person should be at in order to be able to have communication. The issue of falls. Now, this is a big question that people often ask me. Well, what is the risk of falling? Um, there is a risk of falling. Uh, there's a risk of falling any, every time a patient gets up and tries to walk. Uh, the risk of falling with the exoskeleton uh, should be less if the person is following the protocol, meaning that they never, even if they take it home, they're not supposed to be walking on their own. They're supposed to be with somebody else. That's the rules within the United States uh, that the person agrees to. Of course, one difference is, is that if a person falls, it's different if they fall by themselves or if they fall with a now heavy exoskeleton that's also on them. Um, the future really is unbelievable in terms of what these exoskeletons can do. Uh, we already see now some variable exoskeletons, meaning that the uh, person could initiate movement and the exoskeleton, rather than just giving an all or none robotic uh, movement to it, will enhance the movement that the person may have. Uh, other en enhancements will also be not only the smoothness, smoothness of the, how they move, trying to keep them upright, uh, but also brain-computer interfacing. 
and maybe even spine computer interfacing. Maybe next year we'll talk about those things. We do have a, okay, have about 10 minutes. We do have a few other systems that are available. This is called the Parastep. Uh, it really has not, it's been around for quite some time. This is an electrical stimulation device that goes onto the muscles. So not a spinal stimulator, but a muscle stimulator, uh, or a muscle and nerve stimulator. But as mentioned before, uh, the energy expenditure is so high for these devices. And so the person can, people can only go a certain distance. I don't know if any of you have prescribed Parasteps. We did study here a number of years ago uh, on the Parasteps system. It works, but it just is only so far that the person can go before becoming way fatigued. Uh, when we come to research, there's a number of things that are now in research. And we'll last, uh, the last few minutes, we'll talk about some of the things in research. So one very short is the brain-computer interfacing. And this idea that we can control a robotic movement and potentially even stimulation movement purely by thought. Um, and this is a video that I'll show you. Start walking. Great. And this is uh, the person is walking just by thought processes. Uh, by stimulating the different uh, device that they have. This is still being very worked on. This is very early. Um, there is on the left uh, something called the HAL, uh, which is the hybrid assistant limb, which also involves the thought processes that gets transmitted through the spine that then goes and moves into the uh, device. Uh, intermittent hypoxia is another one. Uh, this is a very unique uh, type of study. Uh, let me explain how this works for a second, because this is not only with walking, this is across the board with all types of uh, changes. When we breathe air, the air we breathe is 21% oxygen. Okay? If you decrease the amount of oxygen that a person breathes, one would think that this would be bad. But yet, we now seem to think that if you, for a very short time, give a decreased oxygen exposure in the, what you're breathing, nerves will either grow or nerves will start to rework. Now, there's a whole bunch of theories as to why this happens. Uh, it has to be for very short periods of time, right? Because if you do it for long periods of time, then that's bad, right? That's why we know sleep apnea is bad. It causes cognitive problems, causes other problems. But it's very short bursts. So we're, we're doing work now on the use of hypoxia for upper extremity function to enhance upper extremity function. Uh, it's a joint study with uh, two other centers, Rehab Institute of Chicago and University of Miami. And there are studies in walking as well. So this is a really exciting area that we look towards in the future uh, regarding walking. I'm going to finish up with some of the work that really has, be, has developed a lot of press in the last month. So we're going to try to be as up-to-date as we can. So I think a couple of years ago, I showed you this video for the people that came about the use of spinal epidural stimulation. If we think of this idea that the spinal cord has its own inherent way of being able to work without the brain control, then if we just stimulate the spinal cord, maybe that will bring some benefit. And this is a video. Right, which showed that the 
this is a person who has un is able, unable to move for a couple of years post-injury. They have the implanted stimulator, a stimulator right on the spinal cord. And here what I'm doing is I'm asking the person to lift up their toe, lift up their ankle, and bend their knee. Right. So this is a person who can't move, can't do anything for years. You put a stimulator in the spinal cord, and now they can voluntarily control isolated muscles. So this was really pretty exciting. And some of this work, not only with implanted stimulation, but also transcutaneous stimulation, was shown in UCLA uh, that transcutaneous stimulation may be able to do some similar things. So that was hot news that was unbelievable over the last couple of years. But what's happened in the last couple of months? So this is what's now been coming out since uh, October. So this is uh, a person where they have a stimulator placed in their spinal cord. When the stimulator is on, the person can walk. You can see when it's off, they can't do anything. And you turn it back on. Now the video is not working well. You turn it back on, and the person then can walk again. Let's see if it'll work this time. All right, so how does this work? We well, take a look. Under normal circumstances, brain sends electrical stimulations down to the legs and the cord. But when they have the spinal cord injury, it can't get through anymore. It just stops. But if you put a stimulator in, this is the theory, you put a stimulator in, you boost the signals from the brain that's going down to the cord so that maybe now the thought processes that we have gets through the messages that are meant to get through. So this is, uh, these are videos. One is uh, from um, University of Louisville. The one on the top is University of Louisville. The one on the bottom is from Mayo Clinic, both published uh, within the last couple of months of patients who could not move for years, had an implanted stimulator, and can now walk. Just a few weeks ago, if that wasn't enough, in November, a group in uh, Switzerland published the following. They have three people that have implanted spinal, epidural spinal, uh, oh, my time is up. <laughs> uh, they have three people now who have regained the ability to walk by putting in epidural stimulators. And what's really quite unique about these three is, is that the way that they stimulated the spinal cord is different from the other two centers. And I, I have a few minutes, so let me try to explain it just like this. Initially, the belief was, is that if you just stimulate the spinal cord, and you just keep stimulating it, stimulate, stimulating it, then the cord will allow for the message to go through. This group says, hmm, I don't know, maybe sometimes just bombarding the spinal cord with constant stimulation is too much. And maybe what you need to do is just pattern it. And pattern it after the type of activity you would like to occur. 
so that they've come up with algorithms of, for instance, how to walk. And so that this is, and it's a, a lot longer story than this. We only have uh, two minutes uh, left, so I, I can't go into the great details. But basically, they have real-time triggering patterns of the stimulation to allow the person to be able to regain the ability to walk. But here is also what is truly exciting. They all regained voluntary control of muscles. And some, it lasts even when the stimulation may be off. So there may be proof, early proof, that somehow this idea of that the spinal cord can't recover just may be an old theory. So spinal stimulation, I think it's a major breakthrough. Rehab is critical. And everyone who, who hears about this needs to understand that there is no magic. Meaning, you can't just put in a stimulator and say, OK, fine, now you're all, all good. OK, good. For most of these patients, they've had between 100 and 278 therapy sessions specifically on improving their ability to walk with these devices. So much work still needs to be done. We're really thrilled. If you come back here in a few months, you'll see a building in our backyard, right, right next to the parking lot, which will be our Center for Spinal Stimulation. Uh, we are, we've now embarked. We're doing transcutaneous stimulation uh, already. Uh, Dr. Forrest is uh, leading that uh, here, uh, as well as uh, soon to be doing epidural as well. So what's the summary on walking? Walking remains a focus. For every one of the new patients you see, they're going to want to walk. There's great potential for what people will be able to do between still with the therapy that we give, the ther if you're a therapist, the, the great work that you do, advancing technologies. Unfortunately, the decreasing of therapy hours is not really of help because, as I mentioned, there is no magic. Without the therapy, none of this will occur by just putting a device and switching on and off the, the switch. It's the rehab that's really, truly important. So it really does seem possible that upright mobility will be something that will be available in the future. So I started with him, and I'll end with him, the great words of Christopher Reeve, which is, learning to live with paralysis is a tremendous adjustment. But there is every reason to believe it'll be a temporary one. We must, we can, we will. Have a great conference. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.